Hey there, guys and gals, all you hipcats, cool kittens. This is the Diesel Powered Podcast, the voice of Diesel Punk, and this is the weekly Agent Carter Roundtable for the week of February the 2nd. And I am your co-host, the artist also known as Big Daddy Cool, swinging solid from the Houdini Room at the Casa de Cool in fabulous Nash Vegas, Tennessee. And a um, little bit almost underwater. We, we had a pretty significant storm last night, guys, and the uh, studio got flooded. So I've been doing, oh. uh, I've been doing water cleanup today. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah, lots of fun, lots of fun. You'd think that I was uh, below sea level, but I'm not, but somebody else is, and that's our friend Ken Sharkey, the man, the myth, the legend from New Orleans. Let me make sure I pronounce this right so my wife doesn't kill me, because we are in carnival season. Laissez le bon temps rouler. Let the good times roll, babe. And it is Mardi Gras season where you are at, and uh, can oh, you yeah. be in a uh, parade tomorrow night? Is that right? Yep, uh, I'm going to be in the Mises Parade with my uh, wonderful, crazy contraption band called Noisition Coalition. Uh, it's sort of like if you were to take Stomp and Blue Man Group, stick it in a blender, and pour it into a marching band. Huh? <laughs> So yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'll be I'll be uh, marching. Uh, I think it's like a seven eight mile parade route, and uh, not, not moving for the next three days. <laughs> Pretty fantastic. Well, also joining us from sunny Florida, full time author, Mr. Charles Cornell. It's marvelous to be here. Our favorite topic every week. Yes, we get to talk about the Retro Future Diesel Punk TV series that uh, we've all fallen in love with. Of course, we're talking about Marvel's Agent Carter. And this week's episode, we are covering Smoke and Mirrors. And I will say right off the bat, guys, um, first of all, we're without Daisy tonight. She... um, had another commitment that she uh, had to tend to, but we are going to sojourn on, and uh, I'll say right off the bat about this episode, Charles, they did a really great job of making us fall in love with the villain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, they, they do that. This is their, their modus operandi, and... Uh, you know, we we've got a lot of. We also got a little bit of backstory now. It's taken a whole season and, and a little bit to really find out where Peggy Carter had, had uh, come from. But we also find out where her um, nemesis, her the antagonist uh, Whitney, came from as well in this in this episode. Yeah, and um, so that that's really I, I think the overall purpose of this episode is to. Uh, provide the backstories primarily for Whitney Frost and uh, to give us a little bit of uh, Peggy's backstory. And as we dig into this, what really struck me, Charles, is that these two characters are basically the the, the flip side of the same coin. Mm-hmm. 
or at least that's how they paint them through the 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 flashbacks. Right, right, because they 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 take uh, it's it was very clever. They did a really good job of taking their ages and mirroring them at each age level from from childhood, uh, sort of like I would say maybe eight to ten year old into uh, sort of young adult. And then finally into their, you know, sort of, um, well, I guess probably before young adult, preteen or teen, and then young adult, and then finally bringing it up to, to speed so that we understood what their motivations are. I mean, we're, we're, we're looking now inside their characters. We're, we're delving inside what makes them tick. Yeah, and uh, Ken, we start off this episode with uh, a very young Peggy, like Charles said, probably about nine or ten years old, um, role-playing out in the backyard as a, as a knight-errant of the uh, Templar Order. I don't know if you guys caught the uh, the tunic that she was wearing. She, it had the uh, Templar symbol on it. and um, you know She's roughhousing with her brother, and her mother says to her, Peggy, when are you going to learn to act like a lady? Yep. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I th- I I thought it was great to you know to see the young Peggy taking on the role that most boys would play. You know, the knight saving the damsel in distress, and uh, then you got to see the the interaction with her and her brother, and at you know at first. You kind of think, oh, the brother's going to be kind of like this bully. And, and no, they, they from the get-go, you see this kind of, you know, this play back, you know, play back and forth. But there's there's definite uh, affection uh, between the, the, the two siblings. Yeah, uh, very, you, very connected. Yeah, yeah. Where he's almost kind of like, even at their very young ages, almost kind of encouraging her to kind of, you know, to roughhouse with him and kind of be a tomboy. Uh, and then you know, the, as you said, the mother storms out and you know scolds her for not being a, you know a pro- you know acting like a, a proper girl and everything like that. And I, again, this this goes right in line with everything that we've been talking about. You know, first season and this season is the whole um, ideology that you know, especially during that period of time, and especially since this was what, like 1920s, 1930s or something like that, that, that when they showed Peggy as a little girl, uh, you know, little girls don't play knights. They don't run around mm-hmm. with swords, mm-hmm. you know. They're the ones that are supposed to be rescued by the knights in Shining Armor. They're not supposed to be the knights in Shining Armor. Um, and, and the flip side, the dark flip side of that coin is with Whitney's background, and, and we find mm-hmm. out her, her real name is, is Agnes... Um, I can't remember the last name, but um, but we also f- find out that uh, yeah, and, and you know she's she's really uh, uh, oppressed in that role of you know women, and you know it, it's not what you think; it's how you look. Um, so we see, to some degree, we see on Peggy's side a more. Um, maybe a, a, a more modernistic, future-forward-looking parent who's sort of saying, you know, jokingly, when are you going to be a lady? But on the other side, it's like, you've got to be a lady. You've, that's all you've got is your appearance. And, and don't ever think 
that you ever make it any other way. So we've got that that nice contrast, uh, almost diametrically opposed. Well, but but and the, the same token, <clears throat> they're both being pushed into being something that somebody else thinks they should be. True. Mm-hmm. True. And that was very much the the mode of, of women in the, in that in that gen in that generation. It's you know they I mean they didn't they didn't get the vote they didn't get the vote in Britain until 1921. Hmm. So. The suffragette mu- movement was after the First World War. Well, I, I loved how <clears throat> after we hear uh, Peggy's mom scolding her, when are you going to learn to be a lady, it immediately flashes to her uh, in the lab with the uh, um, immaterial Dr. Wilkes. <laughs> and uh, she's eating a sandwich and the mayonnaise drips out of her mouth. <laughs> it's all over her chin and falls through his... his uh, his hand, and um, I, you know, she just looks at him and like, "What? I'm starving." I uh, <laughs> I just thought that was a great yeah. uh, juxtaposition to that that first scene. Yeah, and and she's she's everyone's uh, best friend, you know, in that in that regard. I mean, they're they're just making her more endearing to the viewer and to. Uh, you know, contrast again with the with the other one, who's um, probably no one's friend. But she grew up. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then the very next scene we get to see. Um, well, you know, before we get to that, you know, it was interesting. Here you've got this um, character of Doctor Wilkes, who is immaterial, but he can be seen thanks to Howard's. Uh, invention with the the emulsion. Although we angle. never got to see it, I was so disappointed. He's not got the bug sprayer anymore. We we have to imagine that it happened, you know. <laughs> or or maybe he's stabilized the formula yeah, that it doesn't have course. to happen yet. Must, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of it's done. That that little that little uh, visual is now history. The, yeah. the, the the flamingo ran off with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's history too. Maybe it makes a flamingo disappear as it just makes uh, Wilkes appear. Well, what was interesting about that scene was, you know, they they really are pushing that relationship with Peggy and Wilkes, you know, Mm. further. And you know, I got to tell you, they did a great job just from a director's standpoint of framing. Peggy's eyes mm-hmm. as she's looking and, and staring at Wilkes and and you know it, it's a really good actor that can express the the inner monologue of a character just through their eyes and and you really see this this almost torn affection that Peggy has for Wilkes mm-hmm. um, she she wants to be close to him she wants to be able to reach out and hold him and kiss him. And and he obviously wants the same from her, but then you see the same, at the same token, that hesitation. And it was all in her, her gorgeous brown eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, if you, if you looked at the way in which they structured the camera angles and recognizing that Wilkes is much taller than she is, 
wasn't it, it didn't it remind if you would have had that in black and white didn't that remind you of some of those old romantic scenes from a, a noir movie oh you know, you'd imagine absolutely bogart and katherine hepburn or or lauren bacall you know that kind of camera angle looking down at the girl and the girl looking up at him longingly they're just about to touch but they can't touch for whatever reason the script is telling them really yeah. good yeah well, it I was great it. yeah it was a great scene um and then we flash to Peggy and, or, or no, then we flash to Whitney Frost in her in her um, secret lair at her home, getting a delivery from the maid, and and it's a big old cage of rats from Isodyne, mm-hmm. and 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 we know she's a scientist, we know she's a super genius, and we know there's only one thing that rats are used for in labs. Right. Mm-hmm. Chasing flamingos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking no, of... No, is that not the right answer? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> speaking of sorry, chasing you flamingos, guys though... You, you, you guys tell me. Well, speaking of chasing flamingos, <laughs> um, our, our next scene is um, Peggy and Jarvis staking out uh, the soon-to-be Senator Chadwick. Mm-hmm. And um, they... Uh, recognize the uh, bodyguard from from the uh, from the club and um, do they recognize him as the guy that attacked them it's uh, it's Jarvis who points out that the driver has the ah, same yes has the same injury to his hand like the attacker oh what uh, you know and then you you have that moment of both of them realizing oh that's that's him. Um, what was really cute in that scene um, that I thought was was a nice little tip of the hat uh, was the fact that Peggy is reading the um, Hollywood Gazette or something like that, and you know talking about how Whitney hasn't you know how Hollywood is all in a, in, in a fluster because. Whitney Frost hasn't been seen on set and the director is missing and so on and so forth. And she hands it to, to Jarvis and Jarvis starts flipping through the pages and makes a mention that, um, Hedy Lamar is, is divorcing her third husband. So basically they are mentioning the Uh, real life person that Whitney Frost is based off of. I missed that. Mm -hmm. That is outstanding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That history of Hedy Lamar is quite something. Now that you know, from our last discussion, uh, Ken pointed it out, and I started reading about it myself, and it, it's amazing. She, yeah, she's an amazing woman, and, yeah. and it's just really this whole undiscovered uh, era of female ingenuity and these uh, roles that they had to play during the war that you know were kind of unsung and and really almost forgotten. Well, and I forgot you—you you reminded me there, Ken, with the the mention of Hedy Lamar in the previous scene between Peggy and Doctor Wilkes. Mm-hmm. Peggy asks, "So, so Whitney Frost is a genius?" And and Wilkes says, "No, I'm a genius. She's beyond genius. She's on a whole nother scale." Yeah. Yeah, because they, uh, he he was showing her the plans for the neutrino. Uh, neutrino- uh, reactor reactor yeah. which is which is 
25 you know percent stronger than anything but yet she has created a reactor herself which is a thousand times stronger than what is actually used by the military or the government at uh, Los Alamos testing sites or something like that so yeah I mean she's like off she's off the scale yeah which is scary in itself regardless of the the what she's able to do you know she's already a she's already a she is the she is the classic evil genius yeah yeah so um so anyway they 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 spy um the would be assassin the bodyguard and they decide that um he's the one to lead them to some answers and that they've got to apprehend him Mm-hmm. And that's when <laughs> we go to the trunk of the car, and Jarvis has an animal tranquilizer, uh, trank, uh, rifle, and Peggy asks him, "Oh, did the flamingo get away again? You know, do you use this on the flamingo?" And he says, "No, it's the koala. <laughs> they look so cute, but they're really quite." Horrible beasts, or something to, to that yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. Don't let yeah. their cute stature uh, uh, hide the yeah the the ruthlessness. Yeah, yeah. It was Koala. just a great scene of the yeah. yeah, yeah. And and you know, kind of kind of cluing us into Jarvis's uh, ongoing battle with the menagerie. Mm. Yep. Nice in joke for everybody there, and. Um, Especially for you, Charles, because they oh, mentioned yeah. the, the flamingo. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, had to have that. And of course, don't forget her sunglasses. They they, huh? they made a big comeback in this Yeah, episode. they did. She was yeah. wearing them quite a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can the, I just... Yeah, the sales I, must be uh, lagging, so they decided to bring it back to <laughs> sales. Can I just add a quick note? I, sure. was watching, I was watching an interview with the actor who plays Jarvis. And uh, uh, he was talking about how he was very excited that they were, you know, filming in Los Angeles and everything like that. The only problem that he had with the fact that they were now filming in Los Angeles is that everyone basically got kind of a Los Angeles, West Coast kind of change to their attire, which also kind of helps them with the, you know, the Southern California weather. He is still wearing his three-piece wool suit. Yeah, yeah, the tweeds. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's his character. Yeah, I don't. I. He his the the actor's name is James Darcy, and and he is a he. Uh, we watch a lot of British dramas through through Masterpiece Theater through Netflix, and uh, he shows up in a lot of very serious um, work. And to see him doing this comedy is totally. It's the diametric opposite that you know this episode's showing with the two girls. But he, it, to me, um, he's much a better actor than he is, and it's kind of too bad that his character doesn't have more drama. But that was my criticism of last year. But I, I'm warming up to this whole idea. I mean, as soon as the flamingo came in, I mean, I just, I just surrendered. I just surrendered. I just said, hey. Guys shows up in this car with a with a cage with a flamingo in it. 
That's it. I know who Jarvis is. I I know what I'm getting you for Christmas next year. <laughs> I, I'm I'm getting you uh, I'm getting you a set of lawn flamingos. Flamingos. Yeah, yeah. We've got a, a one that's lit up that we put out at Christmas. We do. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you a picture of it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Moving right along. Yeah, so uh they they plot to go bag um bag our bodyguard Hunt. and uh we get to meet a nine or ten year old Whitney Frost next. Um Southern rural Southern America doesn't say where. Oklahoma. Ah, okay, Oklahoma. Briarton, Briarton or Byerton, Oklahoma. Well, they used, they were using what sounded like an almost Appalachian Southern accent. That's mm-hmm. that's what threw me. But um, yeah, but uh, they uh, she's sitting at the table. She's repaired the radio that I guess her mom has been complaining has been broken for weeks, and we um, you know her mom's scolding her for for you know fiddling around with the the radio and. Um, tells her she's got to be sweet to Uncle Bud. God, <laughs> Uncle Bud. <clears throat> and um, I can't remember this guy, the the actor here, but he's he's one of those guys that when you see him, you go, oh yeah, I know that guy. Uh-huh. He, he always plays kind of these creepy heavies. And um, Uncle he Bud does a good is, job in this episode. Yeah, yeah, he he's he's right there and um. Yeah, right away, Whitney does not like him or the relationship he has with her mother. And and the, um, you know, you would be a lot prettier if you smiled. Yeah. And yeah. that immediately struck a chord with me because I have a lot of female friends who get so, so tired especially out in public or out and about and they're just walking and you know, it's, it's, it's something that's used to, it's, it's, it's a, it's a control tool and it's something that we've actually seen in another Marvel uh, series. Uh, it was used in Jessica Jones. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, the Mr. Purple, that was his mind. That was his control, uh, factor on jessica jones yeah yeah that's you're you're absolutely right he would always say to her why don't you smile mm-hmm. so uh we we established that you know she's she's rural she comes from a poor upbringing where her mom has to uh i, I mean the in, the implication here is that her mom is turning tricks to pay the rent right um and uh we immediately flash back to, you know, we see her uh, fiddling with the radio, writing down um, basically the, the results of her research in her journal, and we immediately flash to her boudoir where she's doing zero matter experiment number one uh-huh. with the rats. Yep. And... Um, Here's in this scene we see Chadwick coming in. They're they're planning a big coming out um, event, and um, he's now talking bigger ambitions than the Senate. 
I think he even mentions uh, in this in this dialogue, you know, President Chadwick. Well, he tells he tells uh, Whitney how, how beautiful a first lady she'll make. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and they're going to do a magazine. They're going to be on the cover of uh, Time magazine together. And you know they they especially want her and to wear the low cut dress. Mm-hmm. But um, we see that that that's not going to work out quite the way Chadwick wants because she, in her experimenting here, gets bit by the rat. And that's what triggers the zero matter that completely, I don't know how do you describe it, it engulfs the rat and then absorbs it into herself. Mm-hmm. Well, at, at first, you notice like she takes it into her hands and she, she squints her eyes and she's, she's trying to, to force the power to, 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 to happen and it, it, it doesn't take place. Right. It's not, it's not until... There is a something that causes a reaction to her or with her that triggers it, like her, like an like an emotional reaction, like you know, almost like anger or or surprise or something like that. Yeah, and uh, the the side effect, obviously, to her is that that zero matter scar uh, grows. Mm-hmm. Now, in this next scene. Oh, the, the, there's an old woman that looks a lot like Kathy Bates. I thought it was Kathy Bates. I'm, I'm looking at it again, but it's not. But golly, she looked a lot like Kathy Bates. And what I'm talking about here is uh, Jarvis is knocking on the door, yeah. of, <laughs> oh, yeah. pretending to be the cops. We're here to arrest you. And um, the, the cleaning woman is like trying to figure out what's going on. And that cleaning woman looks like Kathy Bates. Ma'am, go back inside. Go ahead. Close the door. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. And, and you yeah. know, Darcy Jarvis here, he, he doing that, that voice, he's even contorting his face like he thinks an American looks. <laughs> kind of I talking love- out of the side of his mouth. Yeah, he's I'm, just hot in his tweed suit. That's <laughs> well. I, I love the line. I'm going to squirt lead at you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? Squirt lead. I think I saw a movie like that one time. Anyway, um, <sighs> that was bad. Um, anyway, uh, what what is this uh, bodyguard's name? I forget. Do we? It's Hunt. it's Rufus Hunt. Hunt, Hunt. Hunt. Yeah. So so he falls for the trap. He runs out the back and is immediately met by a tranquilizer. Easy for me to say. Dart to the gut. But he doesn't drop. No. And and Peggy is like, "Are you kidding me? That's enough to drop a rhinoceros." But it takes her hitting him with the dart again as they struggle on the ground. Mm-hmm. And even then, it doesn't knock him out. He—he, he, I mean, he not—he's knocked out, but momentarily, as soon as he's in the car, in the in the trunk, he's popping the the lid and jumping out again to to fight again. They they gotta hit him with the butt of the gun, and you we're really seeing the the power and the strength that this guy has. 
Well, his background that they reveal is that he is also prior military and served in the Philippines and then was dishonorably discharged because he was running a black market scheme. So he was tortured by the Japanese and even they couldn't get anything out of him. That was his uh, his uh, uh, main major accomplishment during the war. The Japs couldn't crack him. Yeah. Um, and and probably to your delight, Ken, um, when he uh, when he jumps tries to jump back out of the trunk, he hits Jarvis with the tranquilizer. Yeah, and uh, Jarvis gets uh, gets happy. <laughs> I can't remember the word he said too. He was like, it was like Peggy looks at Jarvis and says, "Jarvis, are you okay?" And he's like, "Super." Like superflicious or something like that, and just goes face plant. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I can't remember what it was either, but um, I'm trying to roll back here to, to see if I can. Anyway, yeah, um, and <clears throat> we get some more, you know, comedy, accidental comedy with, with Jarvis. Um, yeah, so. So Hunt is is going to be a big bad here, uh, or at least you know we we think he's going to be a challenge. But you know, Peggy and and Jarvis, with the help of now Souza, which was also a funny scene when Chico's pulling up and Souza's standing in the in the driveway and she's trying to blow him off and walks over to see Jarvis passed out in the in, in the passenger seat and then Hunt wakes up again in, in the in the boot of the uh, vehicle and she's trying to explain to Souza that it's a raccoon that they had captured until Hunt starts yelling for help and she's like okay well maybe it's a maybe it's a man <laughs> mm-hmm uh, yeah, he that that I kidnapped, or not, or <laughs> um, yeah, and and you know, despite it being a federal offense, a felony, Sousa understands how important this asset is, and agrees to help Peggy get the information out of him about the arena club that they need. Now. This just popped into my head, but I almost saw that whole little scenario right there as a beginning of some of the tactics that we would see S.H.I.E.L.D. start to use by just going in and extracting people. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, with the the retro look at the times as well, um, this is the growth of later on we get we, we see this idea of of uh, the communist threat and having to sort of uh, do what the bad guys do in order to beat the bad guys and there's a, a phrase that that uh, Peggy Carter uses in that regard as well so this is very much the time where we've got shadow governments we've got the threat of, of uh, communist spies and it's becoming that that the the good and evil that was in World War II was very obvious to everybody. You didn't have to really describe it, and you you kind of knew 
knew what what the rules were. Mm -hmm. uh, now you're getting into an, an era, uh, the whole post-war era, right up through the Cold War, almost to the fall of the Berlin Wall, where you know the people that really are running the security agencies on either side of of uh, the wall, um, they're they're not playing by the rules that we know are written in the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good point, Charles. Hey, one thing that just occurred to me. I'm I'm watching this again as we're talking. Uh, I've got it on mute on Hulu. The scene outside of uh, Howard Stark's house where they where they roll up and Sousa's waiting for her. They've got Sousa facing Peggy, and it's obvious that he is facing the sun because both of his eyes are squinted nearly shut <laughs> and 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 it looks very painful as i'm watching this again he's only able to open one eye in the blazing sun of course she's got her sunglasses on but um i, I don't know if that was intentional or just accidental just how they, they frame the shot but it's a very interesting uh, you know, diametric. Here he's got this struggle to even look at her, almost a pained expression from the sun, and she's, you know, cool as a cucumber. Well, they they obviously need to make, and, and Charles, back me up on this, they obviously yeah. need to make a male uh, counterpart to uh, her glasses. Mm. Well, I mean, metaphorically, you could say that he's straining to help her with her investigation. He comes right out and says it. Make me a part of this. I don't want to be chasing you on the outside or wondering what it is you're doing. Make me a part of what it is you're doing. Let's partner. Yeah, and, we are uh, a team. Yeah, and so the fact that he's squinting and straining is probably you know, metaphorically representing that whole uh, struggle. Well, I'd like to think so. I, I'd, I'd rather it be that than just Hey, we got to get this shot. Yeah. You know they've been they've been they've been really really good uh, at placing a lot of emphasis on the visuals in this whole series. Now, and I'm not talking about the the really big effects like the, the zero matter, but the placement of all of the the little uh, peripheral things. And um, you know that Bakelite radio. I thought to myself. You know what? That Bakelite radio is, is out of context. It's too early for Bakelite radios like that. And I went and did the research, and yeah, sure enough, that's Bakelite radio for that era. I mean, they, they yeah, they, they, they do that. And so when we start to see a lot of this stuff uh, they're doing, they must have a, a tremendous research team uh, with the fashions and with the, you know, those sunglasses. They, they were probably sunglasses that they had on sale uh, you know, Simpson Sears and all that kind of place, you know. And, and Charles, you bring up the, the Bakelite radio and it just made me remember seeing that in Whitney Frost's uh, dressing room or closet or whatever, her, her boudoir, that same Bakelite radio is sitting on her desk mm -hmm. where she's doing the experiment. Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of that attention to detail, mm -hmm. um, and they've really positioned uh, the era uh, to to capture the, the, the elements of, of um, the society. 
and uh, we're going to see more of that as we talk through this uh, this episode, especially when it comes to uh, the raid on the offices of the Strategic uh, Scientific Reserve. Yeah, you know, one of the things I really like, and, and I'm looking at the interrogation scene where Sousa and, and Carter are interrogating Hunt in the uh, in the store closet of the uh, SSR, and one of the things I really love about what they're doing this season with Sousa, and, and it fits because they're in Hollywood, California, is they're framing him and they're lighting him to look like a Hollywood Saturday matinee idol. Mm-hmm. And you really see it here in this interrogation scene. The Again, transposing, a, you know, this, this, with the exception of the, the limp, the injury that Hunt mentions to Sousa, with that exception, Sousa looks like, you know, a classic Hollywood star. Um, he's got the perfect hair, the perfect skin, the chiseled jaw, and you transpose that against Hunt, who is beat up, he's bruised, bloody, his face is all dirty, his hair's a mess. Um, you know, he's a he's a big guy, and um, you know they're really doing a great job of making Sousa. You know. I don't know how to explain it. More, more, more gravitas, more powerful than obviously season one. He was a little bit of a foil in season one, and now, you know, it's like they are making him a heartthrob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I, I also, and it's interesting that you you bring up Hunt in this scene. I, I for a minute there, almost had the vision of him. The way he was, he had his hair kind of like draped down, and he had this just menacing, beat up look to him. It was very reminiscent of like a classic Dick Tracy type villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've exaggerated him quite, quite, quite a bit uh, with his size and his ugliness and his, you know, ferocity. Uh, but that's what they've been doing. And going to Johnny's point, you know. To, They've they've made him a he's a classic gangster mug from the from the the forties and fifties you know um, you could see him you know being interrogated by Dick Tracy or or um, uh, Elliot Ness Elliot Ness that's what, what I'm thinking yeah what you brings Elliot up <clears throat> yeah Hunt Hunt calls Sousa an Elliot Ness wannabe mm-hmm. yeah. actually it was Carter he called it he called oh, oh did he okay yeah he called Carter an alien this wannabe, which, you know, which is really, really interesting, uh, you know, giving alien Ness's history, but in a way, well, the villain, of- the villain was, was, was in a way almost paying her a compliment that she was kind of a badass like alien Ness. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that because <clears throat> Elliot Ness, you know, for those of us who, who, you know, kind of followed that history, you know, he was a, a U.S. Treasury agent. He he was he ended up being a badass, but you know, he didn't start out that way. He he right. was basically an accountant who who had to step up and and you know do what needed to be done to take down Al Capone, and and he ended up becoming you know that that legendary bad to the bone kind of guy, and and. 
he he calls Peggy Elliot Ness wannabe. We see her with the syringe. Whatever we don't know what's in the syringe yet, but she uh, sticks it in his neck, and the scene automatically flips to several years earlier before she joined the uh, the SSR. Back then, it was the SOE. At her in, uh, announcing her engagement to the uh, ladies' pool of code breakers mm-hmm. in the War Department. Bletchley, well, it's more than the War Department. It's Bletchley Park. Bletchley Park is the um, the place way outside of London where they uh, decoded the Enigma machine, oh. and it's it's actually the setting for um, the. Uh, the recent movie about that with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch that, that uh, was nominated last year. Uh, SOE, by the way, Special Operations Executive, is, isn't is fictional. It is the real um, British uh, forerunner of Britain's MI5, MI6. Oh, and wow. The, the SOS was the forerunner of America's CIA. And between the two of them, um, they uh, had created... Uh, all of what we know today to be the spy infrastructure, uh, whether it's um, intelligence gathering like Wesley Park uh, and, and communications and signals or training commandos, the Special Operations Executive Commission, the first commandos. And uh, um, so this was really at the very, very beginning of that. And they invite Peggy to join the SOE. And, of course, now we're seeing... We're seeing contrast, but we're also seeing we're seeing it through flashback. So we're flashing back to her life before being this badass uh, girl with a syringe, and we're going back to the time when she's, you know, the the, the female code breakers um, and a lot of the women in in the service in those days were in these kinds of intelligence sort of jobs. They were obviously office related, but they were they were listening into broadcasts from from German. Uh, military transmissions. They were translating, decoding, uh, all kinds of transmissions, and then they were obviously trying to get the secret of the Enigma machine. That was a very that was the upper echelon, the absolute top intelligence operation in Britain during the Second World War, and so she had to be really good at what she did to even be there. And then she's you know she's with her her, her girls the girlfriends and they're admiring her ring and they're talking about her future and it, it's this whole denial of the of the journey that she's going to take she's she's a reluctant hero she doesn't want to take this invitation she goes in and tells um, her boss who's very convincing about uh, how they need women as spies because they they used to parachute into uh, into France and those with language skills would blend in with the the French population, which was under Nazi occupation, and do some uh, harrowing things, very, very dangerous things, because you had to have women do them as well. If you wanted a couple to blend in at a party with Nazi officers, you couldn't have them, you know, two men. (laughs) You had to have a man and a woman. And so they would train them, and this was what they wanted her to do, and she declined. She refused it. Well, she went so far as to say... I don't think I'm suited to be in the field. Right, exactly. And this is where you get the timidity of the gender uh, coming in where, 
you know, the men were, were at war, meaning they did the physical stuff, even though, even though the women were in the factories doing the physical stuff. Um, and so it was really quite, um, quite a step to take into essentially going into combat. Well, and, and didn't the, the French resistance had female fighters? Oh, of course they did. Yeah. All the occupied people did. But they, but they brought, you know, the problem was getting the information back home. And they used to parachute them in and then smuggle them back out across the English Channel. To get the, because you remember the communication not like they are today. You can't text message somebody or email right. them. They had to physically carry the documents. They had to steal the plans that were hard copy and bundle them in a little leather satchel and and get picked up uh, by um, by a little rubber boat that uh, a submarine had surfaced off the coast of France. And and it was all very uh, all very uh, manual, uh, very dangerous work. But that's her background, and you know it's really great to see this. I mean, it's taken a whole season to really get to this point for both of uh, both her and the and the, uh, the and Whitney's background. Well, so you know, I, I love this whole scene too because you know we've always known it that you know Peggy is tough as nails, but we've also known that she's smart. And and this scene with with her and the code breakers and being offered this position shows just how smart she really is. Um, and then when we come back to the present, I, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the things this episode didn't give me that I was looking for in some of the flashbacks is how, where where did Peggy get the physical skills that she has. Mm-hmm. Were, were they something she developed as a child, you know, you know, training with her brother or, you know, mm-hmm. is that something we're going to see later on? Anyway, um, but but we see how smart she is and um, she creates this entire ruse with the malaria that she is supposedly yeah, quite, injected quite into brilliant. her. Yeah, quite brilliant. Yeah, and, and even, even Sousa is buying it mm-hmm. until she says, Oh, relax. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's just the cold. It's very yeah. severe, but it will only last about 15 minutes. The art of deception. And that's what you learn in that, in what would uh, at that time have been, uh, the equivalent of a, of a CIA operation. Whereas Sousa, you know, you get the feeling you really never really know what the background. Well, you do. You you know that Sousa and Jack Thompson came from the war, right? They were in they were in the war as regular sort of combatants, uh, and when they came back, you know, they joined the Strategic Sci- Scientific Reserve. Um, but you never really get the feeling that they uh, had ever been spies before. But Peggy's definitely been there and done that. Well, you know, and and it brings up an interesting subject because I didn't know anything about the SOE um, being a real organization and and the foundation of MI6. But you you talk about the art of deception, and I'm I'm wondering, Charles, do you know about the um, history of um, Harry Houdini and Neville Maskelyne with British Secret Service and intelligence? No, but I can imagine they, they, they did something. Yeah, so so um, 
some recent documentation has come out in the last 10 years. Um, some journals were discovered um, suggesting that Harry Houdini was a uh, an agent of uh, British Secret Service um, because of the access that he had to uh, be an audience to foreign powers and whatnot. Um, and, and so he... He taught. He he would have taught and brought this level of, you know, mental and visual sleight of hand to the to the uh, the people who were forming the foundations of, of MI6 at the time. Um, and then during the war, during World War II, Neville Maskelyne, who was a world famous magician, illusionist. Um, created an illusion for the British Army that made the Army appear that they were three miles further away than they really were, mm. um, using a very sophisticated series of mirrors and, and misdirection. Um, oh. and, and the German Army thought that they literally were three miles away. And when, when the uh, illusion dropped... They, they were only, you know, a couple hundred yards. Mm. Um, and he became known as the war magician. Mm. And oh. so, so you know, it, it's kind of funny that, you know, I don't know that this that's intentional here. It may just be a coincidence. But um, there's some precedent in British Secret Service for mm. them using magic and illusion and deception. And, and here... Peggy uses a nice, a nice um, sleight of hand deception, um, you know, mental deception with Hunt, uh, with Hunt. And um, in my oh, mind, I, I would like to think she learned that from. Oh know, yes, from those. I'm folks. sure she did. I'm sure she did. And and you know, remember too, she's she's a master of the psychological arts. Her interrogation techniques, previously with Dottie Underwood and. The, the opening of this series and then in the previous series, her ability to uh, manipulate psychologically is, is obviously uh, not just an inherent uh, talent, it's a trained skill. Which she's, is, <clears throat> sorry, yeah, go ahead. She's good at that because she's been taught it. Yeah, whereas like, you know, you, we have Thompson who's using the, the, the stick and the carrot, you know, the heavy hand, she, you know, she goes in mentally, you know. Yeah, and that's, I think that's what this character really uh, has shown uh, to be to be throughout this entire adventure from the very first time we saw her. Um, she's got that incredible um, mental strength and... Uh, you know, it's it, it, and because it because it's it is a female character, it's it's can be, you know, viewed in the, in those historical terms as being quite exceptional, but she needs it, she needs it because of the challenges that she's facing, and the, right. and the, and the and the antagonist that she's going to face, um, which I which, by the way, if you think about it, um, how do you take that? If you call that her superpower, how do you how does that counter zero matter? I mean that to me as a writer, I'm intrigued by the resolution to this because she doesn't have any superpowers, but clearly Whitney Frost does. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, 
obviously she does have, you know, skill as a physical skill as a combatant, but that's not going to last very long against the zero matter. But she's got that mental toughness. She's got to outwit her antagonist. We know that it's going to happen, but we just haven't got a clue at this stage of the game how that's ever possible. Yeah. Given, given the power of zero matter to basically vaporize people and turn them into ghosts that you need bug, bug sprayers to find <laughs> where they are. Well, and, and her her protagonist is, if, if not every bit as, smarter than her. I mean, she's a genius on another level. And, and, and we see her toughness again, her, her mental toughness again, later on when um, when she has to deal with another situation with other protagonists that wear their ugly heads, you know, later on in the episode. Yeah, um, <clears throat> we're, we're talking about Vernon. Uh, Vernon the Viper. Uh, gosh, I hate that character. <laughs> I, I really do not like him. Um and and we'll talk about that, but before we before we get there, um, we had another flashback with Whitney mm-hmm. uh, in Oklahoma. We see her drawing the schematic, the very schematic that uh, Wilkes had uh, for that super reactor, and it looks like she's maybe about sixteen years old. Um, Uncle Bud is walking out on her mom. And and here's where we get the uh, sense that you know her mom has been well compensated for her time spent with Uncle Bud, as he throws some cash down on the the counter, tells her they they've got a week to be out, and that's where her mom you know takes her by the by the chin and you know has her look in the mirror and says, look, this is the oh. only thing they care about. This is what you have going for you. Yeah, she also uh, pulls out a a letter uh, from a oh yeah uh, from a university, I believe. Uh, university or, uh, of Oklahoma. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I I assume from the reaction of Agnes that it was a it was a letter of decline. Um. No, I think it's the opposite. You think it was an acceptance yeah, letter? Yeah, it was an acceptance letter, and her, because they're so poor, she needs support of her mother to to maybe take that step. And okay. so when her mother is saying, you don't need this, in other words, you don't need to go to school. Girls don't go to school. They get married, or you know, they even go beyond getting married. They, they turn tricks, right? You need right. your face, and what's interesting about that is that her mother isn't is telling her that she grabs her. She actually physically grabs her chin and squishes her cheeks and wiggles it and says, "This is what you have to have," and that sets up her her in her mind uh, um, her, her little uh, uh, trick to, to 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 go into the movies. We see that later. But let's get to these letters, because there's two letters. And the, the, the individuals involved react, their circumstances are, are very similar, but their outcomes are extremely different, and it creates the two characters, and it sets them on both of their journeys. You've got Peggy Carter, 
who's been invited to join by letter, and the letter's always shown on the top of a, a dresser or on the top of a desk, SOE written on it. Um, it's clear what that means. It's, we want you. Uh, you are the best. And she declines it. The hero uh, withdraws from the challenge. She doesn't want it. On the other hand, Whitney is desperate to escape this life of poverty and suppression and um, make something of herself that she knows, you know, with her drawings, she's got so much uh, to do. She's probably at PhD level before she takes her first class. And she gets the letter of acceptance, and she, she's desperate for it, and she can't. And that's going to create her character. This idea that the world is against her. Mm. It's going to stop her from doing what she wants. In Peggy's case, uh, the world is for her. They're all for her. And she is the one that withdraws. See the difference? Yeah. That yeah, contrast good, yeah. is, is absolutely critical to those two characters' makeup going forward. But it's brilliant the way they've structured it. So that every time we see a flashback, and we talked about the mirror image, we see a mirror image of each other. Uh, and their life circumstances are the mirror image of each other's, and their choices, or their lack of choice. In the case of Whitney, she doesn't have a choice. She's not able to do it. And then we see later in the, another flashback where she finds her way to that point by going into the, you know, thinking if she can be an actress she'll get the money and she'll be able to do things that she couldn't do when her mother uh, declined uh, to support her and, and her dream. Brilliant. I, I'd love that. The whole setup is great. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah, that's 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 inter that's interesting. I didn't I didn't really catch that. That's wow. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. Well, you see, you, you know, you guys do the geeky stuff and I do the other stuff. Let's <laughs> <Lots of> geeky <laughs> stuff. With flamingos. <laughs> flamingos, I, just flamingo say. told me. As soon as I saw the flamingo, I got it all figured out. Yeah. Just toying with you guys now. <laughs> Go for it. So we've got so we've got um so we've got to the point where uh we now see the result of that experiment, right? <clears throat> Flash into the into the next scene with the where she's actually able to make these mice but they're not mice, they're rats. Um, they're all gone. Disappear? They're yeah. gone. And the scar is bigger. Yep. And um, she's not going to make the photo shoot, um, obviously, because now the scar is down the side of her face. She doesn't seem to care, though. Yeah, um, her whole her whole mannerism seemed to, to change. I, I, I really... I mean, I, I, I honestly think that this scene we are we're starting to see the the Whitney the madam the madam uh the madam mask you know because she was just very like I'm sorry dear I'm not showing up and just hangs up on him while he's trying to like plead for her to you know please come and she's just like nope yeah I'm in, I'm in control yeah, and this is this goes back to, to what I said about when she was younger, the world was against her, but now she's going to rule the world. That's her modus operandi. She's going to get back at everybody for everything, and she's going to be top. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that brings us to the uh, FBI quote unquote raid of the SSR. Um, Sousa has mobilized uh, his team. They're laying out the strategy. He's he's called a judge friend of his to get a search warrant, but the judge turns rat on him, and in comes Vernon and his goons, and they're going to do a complete audit of all of the cases right now. Yep. And which slows the whole. Uh, process to a crawl. Yeah. Yeah. And which is, which I kind of had to chuckle about because it was like, you're going to audit a, a department that's only been open for six months. That should take what, maybe an hour? <laughs> I don't know. But it was, yeah, but it was a, it was a ploy to basically, you know, they knew, uh, you know, the, the, the Arena Club, or as um, Hunt um, finally revealed uh, during the interrogation, the the Council of Nine. Um, you know, they were they obviously have far-reaching power um, because, as as Hunt even says, you know, they're they're responsible for Black Tuesday and for President McKinley's assassination. McKinley, yep. From my hometown of Canton, Ohio, by the way. Oh yeah. So you know they you know Susan Susan makes the call to get the to get the warrant and uh, immediately Vernon and uh, Vernon from the War Department who signs their paychecks apparently, uh, and uh, FBI agents uh, just make their way in and uh, throw a wrench into the into the works. And we get the we get the the famous line that Vernon says that that it really equates to the pen is mightier than the sword. Put away your shotguns, boys. Yeah, we're gonna audit you. It's like, oh my God, the pen is mightier than the sword. <clears throat> well, and you know that plays into Charles. You know what you've been talking about uh, this whole season is is the shift in the way. War and the way uh, you know foreign relations were played. We we put we literally put down the shotguns. Yeah, it's a very good metaphor for and, it. And waged a cold war that was fought with with propaganda and pens and right. And we also see this this whole um, uh, discussion between Vernon and Peggy Carter when when they get when when he wants his private conversation with her which you kind of always know it's whenever that happens at work you always know that you're going to get a bad performance appraisal right yeah um yeah so let's go into his his office and and uh and talk and he says a tidal wave is coming and you will have to work very hard to stay afloat and uh the reference later to the red scare this is the this is this whole thing about we can't trust what the communists are doing they're they're all over the world but they're in america they're they're here somewhere we've got to find them and uh, this is why we have to just basically set aside all the rule books that from world war ii the 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 bad the good and the bad that was very obvious the methods of you know beating each other to a pulp which is very obvious and dropping bombs on people we're going to do this all now through 
uh, through this mechanism of the clandestine societies, these clandestine government departments, higher and more powerful, more well-connected than uh, what we thought. When we, if you think back to season one, the Strategic Scientific Reserve was this elite amongst elites, right? That's what we, what we thought. And uh, knew more than anybody else. You know, FBI, the police. Oh no, we're the, you know now all of a sudden they're the, the the junior intern here in this global conspiracy. I got a question here, Charles, from a historical standpoint. Who was the uh, who was the director of the FBI after World War Two, going into the Cold War? Was oh, that still J. Edgar Hoover? It was he still J. Edgar Hoover. Oh yeah, he he investigated Martin Luther King and the Kennedys. He was he went right the way through the sixties. So uh, the reason I ask is <clears throat> if this character Vernon is supposed to be an allusion to J. Edgar Hoover, and are they are they telling us that J. Edgar Hoover may not have been um, altogether altruistic? I don't know because I I had the impression that he was the FBI, and when we saw the interplay with him and Jack Thompson earlier in the series here, uh, that's the impression we got. But he made a comment that talked about the War Department. Yeah, he's nothing is more. Powerful than the War Department, and that takes a whole new spin on on this thing because now we're getting into this industrial military complex where um, the civilian uh, agencies like the FBI and the police forces are no longer in play domestically. We now have this feeling that the CIA style uh, and that the hunt for spies that's being done by uh, what could be considered the defense establishment of the time is more powerful than the FBI. Yes, so I'm I'm just doing a little Google here on J. Edgar Hoover, and um, one of the things in one of the articles here on the History Channel is that J. Edgar Hoover was quick to equate any kind of protest with communist subversion. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it, it was just that was the whole, the whole scene, the whole political scene, uh, whether it was in Congress and the McCarthyism and the hearings. Hollywood was suspected to be infiltrated. Everything was being infiltrated. Well, yeah, and it talks here about the civil rights movement. Um, he he equated to communist subversion, which is interesting because that brings us right back to the first couple of episodes. Where, you know, Vernon comes in and, and he and Jack Thompson paint the picture of Dr. Wilkes as a communist right. yep. operative. Um, so I, anyway, I just found that interesting how, again, it comes down to the details, right? Yeah, and they're, they, they've done their homework and they're trying to recreate not just the... Um, the visual, physical things, but also the environment, the cultural, political, and ideological environment of the time. And this is this is what really, to me, separates Agent Carter from a lot of these other kinds of shows. It takes a lot of hard work to do that. Yeah, it does. 
You know, yeah, if you well, try to imagine something that's in the future, you can make up all kinds of batshit crazy things, and nobody can really question it necessarily. When you have to go back to the past and try to make it really feel, look, and, and be like it was back then, with all of its politically incorrect uh, uh, taboos, you know, about uh, women and and about, race, you know, the racial tensions and who could do what, when, and where, and why, but then you really, really cements this episode. Really cements this idea of the of the industrial military complex. President Eisenhower, you look at look up what he said about that was his biggest fear coming out of when he finished his second term was that he is leaving behind a legacy where the industrial military com complex was going to last a millennium. And how were they? How was America going to get rid of this shadow government? that, that uh, we, in some respects people still fear is here today, in existence today. And this is probably what Marvel is also doing, is it's taking a lot of the current subject matters of today and, and, and throwing it back in the past and say, you know what, this has been around a long time. You know, we're talking about it now, but they were talking about it back then too, fighting in their own way. Um, and, um, and Peggy is now the personification of that fight. Think about it. Um, she's been very isolated. I mean, they, they want um, to... The other thing we didn't mention was the fact that she's still there because she's supposed to be on vacation. Because in the last episode, Thompson had told her she was done. And she's now technically on, on vacation. You know, because the whole world is now... She's the only one in this whole scenario that that really has the ability to, to um, fight back. And it was very evident in that discussion with Vernon in that office that she wasn't buying his bullshit. She didn't buy it from the minute he opened his mouth. Yeah, and and uh, <clears throat> neither is Sousa. Sousa got the same speech that a tide is coming, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, you can either uh, swim or, or be swept away or, and watch your friends drown. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of allusion to water there. I, I wonder what we're going to see later on. But, um, I, again, we got another flashback with, with Peggy at her engagement party and her brother meeting her fiancé and uh, basically saying, Peggy, come on, what are you doing? You, you, you've been offered the chance of a lifetime. You know, you you are not this, you know, milk toast kind of woman to just marry someone and, and stay at home. You know, you want to be out there. You want the adventure. You want to be fighting the fight. Yeah, and I, I really, really found the conversation between the fiancé and the brother to be quite interesting, too, where the, the, the you know, the brother is out <clears throat> on the front, you know, out in the front, and the fiancé is comfy in a, you know, in, in an office, you know, back in in England and you know the fiance is like oh so how's you know, how's how's everything going and and the brother's like oh well you know the country is great except for all the Nazis shooting at you <laughs> that was a great line you know and um, you know the, the fiance making kind of snide comments about you know the the, the great um, um, bonus uh, or the the great luxury is is having nothing to do or 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 something to that effect he, he makes a comment you know to the brother and you know the brother's just like you know 
sipping his 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 cocktail, just mm-hmm, sure, and just like really, yeah, like you said, really, Peggy, this is the man you're going to marry, mm-hmm. really. And it, uh, another thing I noticed too, and maybe it was just me, or maybe the way I the way I was watching it, but did you guys notice too that the that the flashbacks, the especially with Peggy's, the tent. To the film quality, change, changes uh, changes a bit. Yes, mm. I did notice that. It's it, more it, sepia. Yeah, it's it's yeah. more sepia. Yeah. Yep, I did yeah. notice that. I thought yeah. it was a nice touch. But you yeah. know, again, you know, be- beautiful, beautiful, you know, shot of 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 the engagement party, um, and you know, I love the fact that the brother reveals to Peggy. That he's the one that suggested that she should join the the SOE because he believed. And how in much her. weight? And how much weight that had with her? Right, you know, because, because he believed in her. He's 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 always believed in her. He has known since they were children that she is a badass. She is the the shining white knight. Yeah, yeah. And that I mean, was a big point in making. So, so now we have what, what's called in, in the literary terms the the acceptance of the quest. Well, you also notice too the quests because the tipping point was her her brother. Oh, everyone up to that point was so supportive. Uh, and obviously, she didn't share that with the fiance. It was still a secret, but it was the brother that really tipped her to to accept finally. And we see well, what, what happens as a result. Yeah, and but uh, you you had a momentary you had a momentary um, there was a momentary tipping point back in the office with uh, with the uh, when back in the code breaking uh, scene when the director of the office I guess you could say tells her you know to fight for 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 king and country and you see her eyes kind of widen like. I you know almost like when you know when she was playing the knight for for king and country, mm-hmm. and then then she you know then the ring she looks down at the ring the ring the the hand with the ring kind of sweeps over the letter. Um, yeah, she was she was an internal conflict there between yeah. her desires and her reality, um, and, and, and 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 obviously feeling not as powerful uh, as a man because in those days the women didn't go into combat that was a combat role. Right. And so she was in internal conflict. When we see her at the engagement party, she's already accepted her her fate, if you wish, of being married, staying at Bletchley Park, doing her thing for, for king and country, but doing it at a desk. And it was her brother that came in with that that those really insightful, uh, almost fencing-like, with, you know, jabbing her uh, to... to to say this isn't you, I, this is not the Peggy I know. Well, it's not just a friend saying that; it's her brother. And it goes, as you say, it goes right back to their sword fighting. They were sword fighting in that in that engagement party, the two of them, mm-hmm. yeah. and he won. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an excellent again. Uh, again, it's it's the layers that we're seeing here, and the way that the writers are using these callbacks. And these uh, literary illusions to, mm-hmm. to to create these layers, um, and of course it takes 
the uh, the news of her brother's death uh, at the front lines for her to pick up the letter and leave the engagement ring and don the, uh, the olive drab uniform and and leave for her field assignment right and, and, and I and, and I knew that that was, you know, there, there's a part that you're like, there has to be that one final thing that pushes her. There has to be that one final thing. And I, you, you, I, I kind of had a feeling that her brother, unfortunately, was, was going to die in combat. But man, I gotta say, that scene of her, uh, you, you, you hear the car pull up, you hear it honk, and the mom is gushing over her in the wedding dress and the, and the whole thing. And as soon as that car, you heard that car pull up, and you heard the honk, I was like, oh, crap, here it comes. Oh, man, here it comes. And the doors open, and, you know, the mom's like, oh, I got, oh I'm going to run downstairs and see what's all about. And she, you hear the, her voice off in the distance asking, you know, asking her husband what's wrong. And Peggy walks up to the window. And, f- and first off, absolutely beautiful beautiful shot of Peggy looking out that out the window um, the in way her that wedding kind of, dress in her wedding her dress wedding. it was absolutely it was breathtaking but then she looks out and she sees her mom crumple and I think we've seen we've seen Peggy Carter upset we've seen her emotionally distraught but to see her literally at the waist like just bend over and is just feeling sick to her stomach. Yeah. Sick she to her destroyed. stomach. Oh, she. And I, I will. I will say it. I had tears in my eyes, and I was like, "Man, this, this is this is this is a great episode." You and know, you know what it, she realized at that moment? What she realized at that moment is that could be her in the future. She could get that call if she married this guy and he went off to war. And she didn't pursue, you know, what she ultimately did pursue. She stayed home. She, it, that would have been her down there. Well, see, I, 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 I really saw it as her brother was her biggest support. Her brother oh, was her, her brother. Her brother was her brother was her biggest hero. Absolutely, and he, he did exactly what she had played as a child. She went out. And fought. He went out and fought for King Country, and now it was her time to step up. Yeah, and I think the two together, uh, you know, the fact that here she was in her wedding dress uh, with the news of of, of uh, her brother's death, recognizing that that he was right all along, that that's mm-hmm. truly where she belonged, and um, she wasn't going to be that person that her mother was waiting for the news of her her husband's death she was going to be out there with all the husbands right on the front lines being um, their equal and that's really what this whole series is about well and and let's talk about what an amazing job of storytelling the, the you know the writers and the the director have done here because that entire scene, of, of us learning that her brother has died was done completely without dialogue. Mm-hmm. There was not one piece of dialogue or, or, or anything that told us. There, there, we didn't see the telegram. 
you know, nothing <clears throat> except the the visual of of what happened told that entire that entire story. And, and it was followed by a scene where we see all the relative images that connect uh, her decision uh, without her saying a word. Yeah. The wedding dress is back on the uh, mannequin in the corner of the room. The, uh, the the letter, the SOE letter, is on the dresser. She's in uniform. She picks the letter up. She goes out. Not a word is said. We know exactly what happened. We, and n- not a word was said. Yeah, and the, the, the uh, engagement ring she places yeah. on the... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they, we just don't see those kind of scenes in television anymore. That that kind of, you know... Symbolism. It's all symbolism, and and it goes right back to the glory days of, of Hollywood in the movies in the 60s and 70s, these great love stories, these great dramas and adventures and the Ten Commandments and all these really big productions where... Uh, they they dealt with really big issues, and um, we've got this in microcosm. You know, maybe we're over dramatizing this. Maybe it's the people who are listening to this podcast are going to think we're very being very melodramatic. But I think <laughs> you're right, Johnny. I think you are because because a lot of this stuff I, I can't I, I turn off a program as soon as I see a program that tries to be serious with serious characters and serious conflicts, and they all look like fashion models out of Calvin Klein ad, right? You've seen these programs before. It's like, oh, give me a break. These people aren't real. Yeah. They don't, don't believe what they're saying, that they've got the script and they're saying the words, but they don't have it. And, you know, we've seen that with some really great acting in this in this program. Yeah, it, quite honestly, and I don't know, maybe it was, it was just me, I almost felt there were two episodes in one. In this, in in in, sure. in, la- in last night's episode, I can see it, that, it, and it was amazing. I mean, it, it, really, I I've got to say it. I honestly think that this, by far, is one of my favorite episodes. Just the, and it really has to do with the flashbacks. There were so, the flashbacks were so well done for both characters that I almost could have watched an entire episode of just the flashbacks, and been completely happy. They were all little mini short stories. They, they, they go from one era of each character's life to another. Uh, they build from one to another. They saw, you see the growth of the character, but then you transpose that to the present. You, you immediately leave. You don't see it all in chronological order. You see it in chunks, and you, you leave the small girls and go back to the woman. And then you come back to the, 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 the sort of teenage girls and then go back to the woman. And then you finally, the young adult and the quest that they're both on. Remember, they're both on, the, on a quest. Because let's not forget what happens to, to Whitney when she goes in front of that movie, that movie uh, theater and somebody says to her, you've got a face that Hollywood would love. And she's thinking back to her own journey of world domination in, in a way of getting back at the world. How do I get back at the world? Well, you'd look great if you just smiled. The camera would love you. And these yeah, are he, these are the he, moments where they're connecting to the character, uh, you know, to bring bring it uh, from from childhood to, to womanhood. 
Yeah, so so let's let's talk about that. You know that that flashback is part of the final scene. Hunt has, uh, you know, seemingly escaped. Of course, <laughs> Souza and and Carter let him escape, but put a, uh, a transmitter on him so they could uh, you know listen in. Uh, he he makes his way to Chadwick and Frost's house. You know they they have the the confrontation with him and learn that he's given up some of their secrets, but really, what is he given up? Not a whole lot. But enough that um, Whitney uh, needs to clean up another one of Chadwick's messes, as she says uh, when, when she finishes with Hunt. And here we see her take another, apparently take another life using her zero matter powers, um, and as that's happening, we flash back to the theater, outside the theater, where she's approached by the, the Hollywood agent. You know, you'd be great if you just smiled more. And and I love the line that he, he gives her. Um, you know, when, when he asks her name and she says, Agnes, he says, oh, no, we'll have to change that. Mm. And and she said, what, what do you mean? You can do that? And he said... Honey, in Hollywood, you can be whatever you want to be. Mm. And that's when she accepts her quest. Yeah. That's the moment where she accepts the fact that she's going to take that brave step, changing her life completely from this little podunk town in Oklahoma to Hollywood and accept the quest of her journey, which is to dominate the world and to get back at the world. It, it's a, it's just a, a tremendous uh, uh, acceptance. Both of them, if you think of both of them accepting their quest, the, the, the Peggy walks away from her, her, her wedding that's really not her. And in this case, um, Whitney has that line that you just quoted, that you can be whoever you want to be. And it's almost as if you expect him to say, and it doesn't matter how evil you are, it's all good. You know, and it's like, yeah, sign me up. Well, and and that line leads us directly back to the the completion of of that scene with Frost and Hunt and Chadwick. She has um, used her zero matter powers to destroy him, Hunt, and Chadwick, in horror, says to Whitney. What have you become, or what are you, and what does she say? Whatever, Whatever I want. And yeah. and what I what I think is brilliant with this scene is when Whitney, when Chadwick and Hunt are are first confronting each other, and uh, Whitney walks up and goes, "Honey, I I need to show you something." He dismisses her, and she's like, "No." I need to show you something. You know, he's, he, you know, obviously mistakes were made, but there are always ways to fix the problem. And right there, she has solidified her dominance over Chadwick. Mm-hmm. And the, the, to watch Chadwick absolutely crumple into that chair in terror as to what his wife really is. And the fact that she turns to him, it's, that's that that crack 
on her face has gotten bigger. She now is in charge. She now dominates Chadwick. Chadwick is now completely at her will. And that is when she full force solidifies her role as the master villain. You know, I got to ask a question here. Do you think Chadwick knows that she is the super genius behind Isodyne? There was some allusion to that in an earlier episode. We have to go back and see. Be- I thought they were in partnership with one another, and, and I thought that he did know. Well, because the way he dismisses her in this scene yeah. when he says, I, I need to show you something. Yes. That's what made me wonder if he really, really realizes. I don't think he does. Who she I, is. That that particular moment, you're right. But I had been led to believe that he did, and that well, may be a slip up in the way in which they've constructed, uh, uh, you know, their relationship. Uh, because I got that impression. I don't know see, how I, I got and, it. And and I'm with Johnny. Uh, I'm with John on Johnny on this. Uh, I don't. I don't know if he really did because he had made comments to her, you know, in the in past episodes about, you know, once I become senator, you can retire, you can have all the babies you want, and blah blah blah. I, that's not. Yeah, you know, that's not the. Um, and mind you, they're having this conversation just between the two of them. That's not necessarily a conversation that I would suspect he would have with someone right. who actually had more power and he's right and he's she, the reference to retiring is not from isodyne but from hollywood from acting yeah yeah, yeah. no you're absolutely right i got that impression by something that would have been said earlier and i think it was because we are moving we move very fast first couple of episodes move from scene to scene very fast and uh you know keeping up with the dynamics of who knew what when and where was was uh was 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 quite a, a challenge at times. Yeah, that's but now we know we, now we know exactly where we are, right? Yeah, and now there was, we know exactly where we are. That, there's something else that we've we've kind of uh, skipped, um, which is probably extremely important, is that Wilkes uh, seems to be um, losing his struggle with his with the state he's in. Right. Um, he sees a crack actually appear to him on the chalkboard. Uh, he mentions to Peggy that he's finding it harder and harder to sustain his 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 presence, or you know, right. the the state that he's in. It, and I some almost, something calling to him that that he's feeling like he needs to let go and and, and surrender to. Right, and I I almost I almost wondered if. Every time Frost used her ability, ah. if, it was, if it was affecting him, yeah, I, you have to assume so because they were they were in the uh, in the accident together. Mm-hmm. They they were they were actually uh, touching when when mm-hmm. the dark matter exploded. So they're connected, and uh, that's a great point, Ken. That maybe when she uses her power, it. it diminishes him somewhat or or um or connects them even further i i think i think the point though is that he is going to be the probably the the impetus 
of of victory in this struggle. That yeah, he, he's, he's going to be he's going to be Peggy's superpower. Yeah, because she can't do it herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> couple of final thoughts. Um, I did love this episode. Um, I you know the the problem that you have when you have these uh, bigger casts and and this cast has gotten a little bit bigger this season is that uh, you don't get to see the character development or in this case some of the characters that, that you, right. you saw before we again we're we're missing Mrs. Jarvis I, I was disappointed by that um, Rose was not visible she was mentioned or. Peggy talked to her on the phone, but uh, not even mentioned by name. And of course, we we don't see Howard in this episode, which we don't know, see Jack Thompson. And yeah, Thompson is only mentioned. And you know what's interesting too is we have lost, and this is one thing I would criticize him for a little bit. There was a dynamic going on there where Susan was going to leave his fiance because he still had feelings for Peggy, and that has, was completely vacant from this episode. Well, we he did. That connection. He did mention that he put off, um, or or no, no. Peggy mentioned that he put off his engagement. Yeah, but it's not. It's almost as if they got too much going on, and it, it's hard to fit it in into that uh, hour, which is less than an hour when you take the commercials. Yeah, out. forty-five yeah. minutes. Yeah, there's a and, lot going on. Yeah, there is, and and you know a lot of these, as we learned, kind of in the the first episode or first season, a lot of these loose threads will be uh, will come back. Um, some maybe not. Um, you you remember that in season one, the uh, two Leviathan assassins I can't remember their names, oh, but yeah. who had the uh, star shaped scar on their throats where their tongues were yeah. cut out. Um, they they just were kind of forgotten, right? And we never saw them again. So, but I think one one plot thread that that is going to play a big part in the next couple of episodes, and something that we've not mentioned, and I think intentionally we've been made to forget about, Dottie, is Underwood. Dottie Underwood. Oh yeah, yep. oh yeah, yeah. Isn't it great? I mean, you've got uh, you've just You've actually named a set of characters that could have their whole episode all, all on their own. Yep. You've got enough of them with enough differences uh, on both sides of the good evil equation to have an episode. And this is probably what they did. They said, "Oh shit, you know, we've got to we've got to create this um, backstory with these two main characters, and there's no room for anybody else." They crowded everybody else out. And and that's okay. Sometimes you have to do that yeah, as a storyteller. I, you do uh, absolutely, and so there's much more to come. Yep, yep. Really good. Well, guys, um, wow, uh, an hour and 43 minutes talking about a 45-minute show. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's a testament to how well-written and how well-produced this show is. And I got to tell you, um, I, th I think season two so far has really upped the bar. I, oh, yeah. I loved season one. I thought it was a fantastic show, but you'll remember when we were talking about it week after week, it really wasn't until those last three episodes where everything really clicked on that roller coaster ride. And 
on this season, I feel like we were on the downward slope of that first ramp from episode one. And and this was a nice chance to catch our breath, but at the same time, there's so many layers and so much happening in this 45-minute episode that, um, I mean, and we didn't even talk about all of it. I mean, there's we, we could probably talk another hour just about the smirk on Vernon's face mm. uh, that I wanted to smack off. But, <clears throat> um, you know, we, we, we just don't have time to, to dig into everything. But uh, any final thoughts that you guys have on, on uh, smoke and mirrors? Oh, you know what, Charles? Isn't that interesting that they called this episode Smoke and Mirrors? And we were talking earlier about Mirrors. illusion and deception yeah. and the and mirrors mirror of the of stories. It. Yeah, isn't that the mirror? Weird? The mirror is 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 between the main protagonist and antagonist, and the smoke is on either side of that mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. They they they're they're a clever team of scriptwriters. Uh, they've got a, they must have a research team behind them to drag up all this all this little stuff that the Hedy Lamar references I mean it's just a, it's just a rich it's a very rich dynamic uh, both visually and intellectually rich uh, program well let me ask you guys this because I'll, I'll be honest with you um, when we were reviewing season one I was I was watching the the forums and reading a lot of the uh, fan comments and this this season not so much i've i've really not paid attention um it do you are you guys hearing good bad or indifferent from from fans are you paying attention at all um a lot of what i have seen is a lot of just wow you know like just a claim for you know again you know having a strong female lead and now we have a strong you know f again female villain um there have been some comments that i am greatly disappointed in um i saw a very nasty comment about you know the fact that they have an african-american male and a white female and there was some hollywood liberal whatever you know but uh, you know whenever you're dealing with forms and stuff like that you're you're going to have just negative horrible stuff like that but the overall the overall feel i've been getting is that a lot of people pretty much like we've been saying feel that this this season the second season um is extremely well written and might be even you know it, and is stronger than than the first season and I think yeah, this, this is to me. It's, this is going from the the graphic novel, very much connected, if you if you remember, to Captain America, to the from that feel to something much more like an amazing story meets uh, a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall romance meets a uh, uh, you know a spy thriller, the very first James Bond. You know, it's very it's very much at a different level. Of writing, yeah. My the 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 thoughts that I had uh, on this uh, first one, uh, just real quick, and, and and it may be completely coincidental and accidental 
on the part of of, uh, of Agent Carter. I did notice that the uh, talent agent who was standing out in front of the movie theater, the one who tells Peggy that you know she would be prettier if she smiles, is wearing a purple jacket with a purple tie, which the main villain for Jessica Jones wore a purple jacket. Um, but you know, again. Well, isn't that interesting? Because he he basically uses the same line on on Agnes Whitney Frost that, uh, that Mr. Purple, yeah, yeah that uh, that Kilgrave uses on uh, Jessica Jones. You know, yeah. you you should smile more. You you be a lot prettier if you smile. So you know, again, that's probably hmm. an unintentional Easter egg. I, no, still... I think it's probably intentional, unrelated but intentional. Yeah, but um, I, I'm beginning to suspect they don't do anything by accident. <laughs> True. The other thing I, I wanted to point out is that you know it's interesting that we you know we we're used to uh, a, a hero having to deal with one you know major villain. Um, <laughs> this this season not only does she have to contend with you know madam mask whitney frost with this horrible horrible ability she's got the council of nine who have so much political power so she, so she's going up against the super evil genius and the shadowy illuminati you know we've controlled everything for so long and I, I I can't wait till the Council of Nine, which uh, they've got to find out through Chadwick somehow, that Whitney Frost has this power, and you find out, you, you, I, I'm hoping that we see this, well, we're a male-dominated secret society, we're now going to capture you and use, us for, use you for, for our own nefarious reasons, and her being a, a woman who has been through so much, as we see through her flashbacks, fights them. Yeah, we've got a lot more. Ro it's as Yogi Berra once said: "If you see a fork in the road, take it." And, and we've what, got we, a lot of forks in the road ahead of us, where the scriptwriter is going to take us. We have absolutely no clue which one they're like, going to choose. And, and, like first season. <laughs> yeah, and we only have four more episodes. Oh, yeah, my God. I, really? Yeah, there's this this there's building this into a, a third season because of what Ken just said. I mean, how else could you create this council of nine and or a, a battle of bad guys, which I always love when the bad guys fight each other. Um in and and resolve all that in four 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 episodes, and still have Dottie Underwood as a distant memory. I mean, you know, and a flamingo. I mean, <laughs> and the flamingo. So many roads to go down. Oh, it's going to be good stuff. Good stuff. Well, guys, thanks for joining me again this week, and uh, we'll do it again next week um, with uh, episode five um, of eight. Um, and uh, I just want to remind our listeners, uh, if you like what you're hearing on the show, uh, send us an email. Let us know 
feedback at dieselpoweredpodcast.com. Uh, you can also support the podcast with a donation um, at dieselpoweredpodcast.com. Just click the Donate Now button, and uh, your gen- generous donation helps us bring you free content like this and uh, keeps our lights on, keeps our broadcast booth running, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. Or you can visit one of our sponsors, audible.com. Get an audiobook free on us at audibletrial.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast. They have over a thousand titles that you can choose from, and uh, you can pick one on us just for trying them out. Also, if you're into comics and you like getting surprises in your mailbox every month, check out our sponsor, Comic Bento, uh, at mycomicbento.com. They deliver a bento box, a mystery box of graphic novels valued at at least $50 or more every month. And um, it's less than 20 bucks. And I will just tell you guys, um, I got my bento box yesterday. And um, Ken, I don't know if you're into the Valiant series um, Rye, uh, but uh, they... Uh, they included the graphic novel collection Rye, Welcome to the Welcome to New Japan, and it is a straight up cyberpunk noir samurai ninja story. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. So anyone who's into that cyberpunk aesthetic, you're gonna dig Rye in a big way. It looks like it looks like Blade Runner with with cybernetic ninjas. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, sign me up. Yeah, and uh, also in the bento box this month was um, Lola XOXO, which is a post-apocalyptic diesel punk comic published by Aspen Comics. And it's one that I've talked about on the Diesel Powered Podcast for the last couple of years, and I've never actually had a chance to read it. So it was a nice surprise to get that in my mailbox, and uh, it's at the top of my reading list this week. Um, gorgeous artwork, by the way. Um, both of those books are painted, so um, they look—they just look gorgeous. Look, look fantastic. So, uh, anyway, mycomicbento.com. Check them out. They are a sponsor of us, and um, if you sign up for their subscription service, less than twenty bucks a month, it helps us out. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. And um, guys, any last comments? Can't wait till next week. Yeah, same here. Yeah, same here. And at, like I said, amazing episode. Absolutely, absolutely amazing episode. The cinematography, the storytelling, the acting, just well done. Marvelous. Let's hope it gets recognized at the Emmys. Well, guys, on behalf of uh, Charles Cornell, Ken Sharkey, this is John Pica, also known as Big Daddy Cool Johnny Dallaraca, telling you to swing hard, swing often. 